A quick note before we start this episode. Ron's internet was acting up the night we recorded this show. Rather than not record it, we decided to carry on. We were able to fix most of it in editing, but there are a few times where he sounds a little slow. Please bear with us while we get this figured out, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. We're back with another episode. So what's going on in Utah, Jason? Well, it's real windy here, but I think we're all experiencing a little bit of that, right? Um, just uh, had a great weekend. I hung out with the family and uh, got out and shot some turkeys on Sunday morning a little bit. Um, it's that time of year. Spring is always one of my favorite time of years to shoot, as Ron said. He's mentioned that before. But yeah, getting out and shooting those turkeys, they're starting to strut pretty good. And I found a couple of new areas to check out, so that's always fun. A little bit of a haul from the house to get there, but uh, worth it because there was about 200 to 300 birds <laughs> with about 50 gobblers. So, <laughs> Is that a public land or is that private land? It's private, but you can... It's public road that goes through private areas, so you can you can access it that way. Um, it, you know, it's it, with turkeys. What I've always found they're they're tough to shoot in my experience, unless you have access to a private area that you can set up a blind and just kind of hang out and let them come to you. Um, shooting them spot and stock, if you will, with a camera is pretty tough, and a lot of it's just you'll see them. You see a lot of turkeys, and I could have taken oh geez a ton of. Um, amazing turkeys strutting in the middle of the road photos but you know getting them getting them in some habitat is uh, is the trick and they like i mean they go into the road because they like it right they like that flat area the hens tend to be up on the side of the road um eating and picking and uh those those toms are in the road and they're it's really cool right when they're in that road because when they fan up and their wings drag the ground and you can hear it really really well on that on the pavement but yeah, you know, it's just, that's the challenge is getting some um, habitat without all the other stuff in the way. And that's a good thing to photograph this time of year anyway, all across the country, because you've got turkeys just about, other than Alaska and Hawaii, I would assume most places between the Rios and the Osceolas and the Merriams and what's the other one? Easterns. There's got to be an opportunity within couple probably two or three hours of anybody that you could find some turkeys right oh yeah i mean come on man you talk about a conservation success story <laughs> i mean we have so many turkeys in this state it's insane and most of them are almost ones i'm shooting are rios but they're just they're thick and they're everywhere and you can go up any canyon here in in utah and you're gonna see turkeys so really that's the way wyoming when i was a kid we didn't have we we had turkeys in basically two pockets in the state, and both of them were over in the the northeast east corner of Wyoming, over near Devils. And there's not a county that doesn't have a you know a, a thriving turkey population. So it definitely is a success story. And like you say, Mike, it's you you can find them just about anywhere. You know you're dealing with city birds though if you're talking about them dragging their wingtips when they're strutting on the asphalt not even on a dirt road they're just on the asphalt 
<laughs> well, what's going on for you, Ron? Are you out chasing turkeys too? Now you're more into the grouse stuff now, right? The yeah, the sharp tails have started. It's been and and I'll talk about this a little bit more later on. It's been a little bit frustrating because I think I usually go a little bit later. I started earlier this year because I saw I saw a video from a guy in uh, Alberta actually and they were already just going crazy up there on a lek. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll go up and check a little bit earlier than usual. And there's a lot of snow, there's a lot of weather up in this area where they where they are and so they were they were way spread out. And I think I talked about that either last week or the week before. Um and just kind of acting different than I've seen them act before. But I have to keep in mind that, you know, this is a lot earlier, so I don't really have apples and apples to compare with, even though that's, you know, I'm comparing them with what I've seen in the past. So, but I don't really have apples and apples because it is a different point in the lecking season. So I don't know. Maybe it's just because everything's not established yet. They're trying to establish a pecking order. Um, no pun intended. And and then they'll come back to the traditional left. So uh, I guess it's a it's a wait and see game from here. So and you're not going out for sage grouse just yet. This is just sharp tails at the moment. Yeah, I've gone out. I've gone out to the sage grouse legs just to confirm that the birds are there and they're strutting. I haven't set up any blinds or done anything yet to get ready for that. And I am going to try something different this year. Usually. You know, I just go in a ghillie suit, especially when I'm by myself. This year, I'm going to go try to go strictly in the blinds and just kind of see what the difference is, see how those birds react differently to that photo blind than they do to the to the person on the ghillie suit. Well, the good thing about being outside is you don't you can keep your social distance and you aren't going to be getting this uh, coronavirus, right? Because I'm told that. <laughs> Outside, the UV light kills the virus. Have you guys heard that? I haven't, but I, I like it. I'm <laughs> going to go with that. <laughs> it's no different than one of those little stereo pins in your water, right? It's just right. going to kill it. You know, the ultraviolet, ultraviolet light does it. So I think uh, it promotes a lot of outdoor activities. And yeah, along that coronavirus line of thinking, I talked to... Uh, an old friend of the podcast today, Doug Gardner, he texted me about 6 a.m. this morning. And he's like, hey, can I call you? I have an emergency. And I'm like, ah, what's an emergency? What can I possibly do? He lives in North Carolina, right? I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, sure, call me. Turns out that uh, he's working on the next Planet Earth project for BBC. And with all this hysteria going on around the country apparently they're pulling a lot of their crews well he is so dedicated to get i can't say what he's probably shooting right now and it's it's in louisiana i can say that normally he relies on the bbc sending him equipment to shoot this stuff so whether it's batteries or cards or you know he's using the red camera so he's got you know it's just not a card that you can run down to best buy and pick up he's having a hard time getting equipment with all, all the coronavirus stuff so he's like, hey, do you have any batteries you can send me? And do you have any mini mags is what we call the red cards. Do you have any of those that you can send? And I'm like, um, sure, <laughs> I can certainly do that. But I've never really sent like six big, huge lithium ion batteries through the mail. I order them 
through the mail, but I usually order one or two at a time. But they are always put up with the hazardous materials, and you can't airship them. It has to be ground shipping. So I wrapped them all up in a box with, with a card and one of those mini mags, and I went down to UPS today and sent it off to him so that he can continue doing his shoot even though he can't get any equipment. It's an interesting time. He's, he's just so determined, and he's such a dedicated shooter that he – this is a very timely thing that he's shooting. By not being out there for one day, he could miss what's going on. And he's been shooting it already for two weeks. Who knows when it's going to happen, but he's got to be there to do it. So he's he was in a panic this morning, but it was... Hopefully, we're going to be able to help him out. Those batteries won't get there since they're going ground from Colorado to Louisiana. is like three... It was told me Thursday. Days, huh? Thursday, they would get yeah. there. So Anyhow, that's what's going on here. I'm still doing the... Hard drive, digital asset management stuff. So I haven't got out in the field at all. But you keep inspiring me, both of you guys, by getting out there. So I'm going to have to make some time and and go. And it sounds like we're going to get a trip put together here shortly. So we should all get out in the field together for the first time this spring, which will be kind of nice. Yeah. Well, we may we may be able to. Right, Ron? Me. <laughs> well, we will. Just a matter of where, you know, if, if we yeah, can't yeah. if we can't get to the one lek that we're looking at, then certainly we've got other options. It's just who gets to travel furthest. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to is what's accessible. Well, the way we yeah. got it worked out right now, isn't it? We're going to meet up at a spot that's about equidistance for all of us, right? About four hours. No, yeah. it's probably a little bit shorter it's for Jason. A little bit shorter for Jason, not a lot. Yeah, it's about three hours for me, but it's not too bad. I heard that um, up in the mountains here in Colorado, they've closed all the ski areas. And yeah. this is like the busy time right now. It's like cranking with spring break and all that kind of stuff going on. And they shut down all the hotels, VRBOs, everything is sh- no moss. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, if we end up, in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, you better bring a tent. We're, we're not going to have to buy toilet paper. We'll just use wet wipes, <laughs> which is not in as high a demand currently. <laughs> what were you, you going to say, Jason? <laughs> I can't oh, talk. my heck. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Ron that uh, I saw a blurb that the, the, uh, Native American parks are shutting down. So like Monument Valley and some of the other parks like that. And you, you know, you start seeing this domino effect and it's probably just a matter of time before the national parks shut down too. So, you know, it's going to be, if you're going to get out and shoot, you're going to have to be creative and you have to go find some opportunities, but they're out there, you know? So, all right, well, let's get into our pro tips. So for our first one, I know Jason, yours is probably the most solid pro tip of them all. So let's start with you. In one of the previous episodes, we would talk a little bit about some issues I was having with my, um, with the images I was seeing my pre my playback images on my Sony. And because we have such awesome listeners and Kate and Adam were listening to the podcast and they're a couple of the folks that have helped me so much with my Sony setup and helped me understand my Sony camera and how to set it up properly. They actually reached out to me after they listened to the podcast and told me, how to address that issue. And it's a, it's called a DRO setting. I don't know exactly what the DRO stands for, but basically it creates an HTR preview of your image if you have that on. 
And that's what was happening to me is it was trying to make an adjustment to my to my exposure and making an HDR version to show me a preview of my image. And that's why anything I would shoot wouldn't wouldn't match what I was producing. So I flipped that sucker off. And when I was out shooting turkeys on Sunday, like magic, it went away and I haven't had any more issues with it. So so, yeah, thanks to. Adam and Kate Rice for um, texting me and helping me out with that little setting. And hopefully, you know, that helps somebody else out here too that's listening. I know a couple of the folks that I was shooting with this weekend are Sony shooters and they were having the same issue. And when I mentioned it to them, they had no clue. And they went in and changed that setting and were all very, you know, tickled with the result. So, so your main issue was in the camera review, not necessarily getting it into Lightroom. Correct. My It was just that. You know, I'm so used to, and I love my Nikon. As I mentioned before, I still have my Nikon gear. I don't plan on getting rid of my Nikon gear anytime soon. And when I shoot with my Nikon, I get that immediate um, playback image. And I use that to make sure I'm adjusted properly on a lot of my settings, right? So I'll zoom in 100% and check my exposure and my my details and such. And um, with the Sony, it's a little different. That's one of the things I think I mentioned in that last podcast that I wasn't real happy with. And part of that frustration was just that very fact that when you take the image, it create when you go into playback, it it's not what you saw in the viewfinder because it's creating this preview image. It's an HDR and it's making adjustments for you in a JPEG. So knowing that, you know, now with these turkey images I took, they come over just like I saw. I didn't have any issues at all. And when I put them in the Lightroom, they were exactly what I saw in the back of my camera. So yeah, big, big thanks to those guys. So we should uh, give them a, you already gave them a shout out, but their Instagram is Car Photography, K-A-R Photography. So that's Kate and Adam Rice, K-A-R Photography. And they're actually doing workshops. So if you are a Sony shooter and if you're not up like Jason was, not up on all these settings, I know those guys know that camera way better than most. So if you're a Sony shooter and you're interested in a, a workshop maybe that would be a good good group to go with because they would help you with camera issues just as much as they would help with finding wildlife yeah and kate in addition to being sony shooters and knowing that camera they're great photographers kate actually won the wyoming wildlife contest this year so props Oh, that's her, cool her again yeah what was the image of do you know it was a fox chasing a, a mouse across the snow and it was the the mouse was just it looked like it was downhill i don't know what the what their perspective was but it looked like it was going downhill and the mouse was running away uh from a red fox and the fox was kind of spread out on the snow trying to maintain balance as it was pursuing the mouse oh, that was cool. a great shot good good action shot wow well that's a good shout out for those guys and hopefully um I'm sure they've got a website too, so we can put that show or that link in the show notes. And if you're interested, look them up. So Ron, let's uh, hear what you've got for a pro tip. Well, mine kind of goes back to um, what we were talking about earlier with the grouse and things aren't exactly the way they normally are. Um, but the, the biggest thing is just to be patient. It'll, it'll come back. Don't push the shot because you're going to end up driving those animals even further away from what, you know, from where they normally are. So I, 
I have taken one guy out this spring and I think it was frustrating for him because um, he was wanting the images, came a long ways, wanted to get the images of these grouse, uh, but they weren't behaving like they normally do. And, you know, you just can't push it. So be patient. When you have these wildlife opportunities, you know, like Jason was talking about with the turkeys, we don't want our behavior to influence the animals. So, you know, basically the only thing that we can do is just sit and watch and enjoy the, the behavior that we're, we're witnessing or that we're blessed to be able to witness and just be patient. Those animals are going to give us the opportunity. may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow, but it'll come. Well, and I think if you listen to the last podcast with Drew, he said the same thing too, right? We talked about that experience where he had some bears and just with his guiding knowledge, he knew that it was a sow and a cub that took off and he's, yeah. you know, some other yeah, photographers right. were following that sow and cub and he's like, nah, they're going to be back in 15 minutes. Let's just set up the shot. And he was right. You know, he knew it. He now he had the benefit of that knowledge of that species, but we got into a big discussion on patience and it, it pays off way more than it doesn't. You still, like you just said, you're still not, there's going to be times where you end up with zero images, but there's going to be times where you end up with the killer image too. If you just patient and wait it out. Now with sharp tails, you can actually move a little bit. And if they fly off the luck, they will come back. Whereas if you do that with sage grouse, you're done, right? Yep. So if you get, you know, like Jason's had a lot of experience with them too. You get a raptor that flies over. You have a golden eagle that flies over the the lake and they leave. It's you're done for the day. Might as well go have breakfast, a cup of coffee. So that speaks huge. You can't have coffee before. (laughs) That speaks. Well, I can. You can't. Um, That speaks huge to the patients. If you don't have it, don't push it. If you booger those sage grouse off the lek, you're done. If you are trying to push it, don't. If you are chill in those leks with sage grouse, you could have two hours, right? Or three yeah, hours exactly. with those birds. If they, you know, and you're gonna get it eventually. So just kind of hang tight. Yeah, and there, you know, you're talking about the propagation of a species that's kind of on the brink. So you don't want to push them at all, anyway. Um, they they have enough obstacles their way to be able to successfully rear a you know, a brood of, of chicks. So give them their space, sit back, wait, and enjoy it. It's fun to watch whether you're getting images or not. Right. So just sit back and, and relax and enjoy the ride, so to speak. So about patience, and it was actually shooting sage grouse, and it was the year before last. Last year, I didn't have any luck at all, all shooting grouse. I went out three different times and just never connected. Um, but the year before that, I was out shooting and I went to this lek that we're talking about going and visiting and it's not real well known so it doesn't really get any other traffic other than us and we were out there to get so the way we do it Ron back to your comment you made earlier with the with the blinds we actually try to get there about 3 30 3 o'clock in the morning and go out onto the lek and set up our blinds and then just get in the blind and we just wait until sunrise and so you've got to do some scouting beforehand right so you've got to go out do some scouting um, find out where you want to be and then so you can go back in the dark. So then you mark your spot and go back in the dark and then get set up. Anyways, long story short, the first morning we did that right as things were starting to get good, you know, grouse start flying into the lake as early as four, four thirty in the morning. 
and they're doing their thing pretty early. And they they got going, and the light was just starting to get to the point where we could shoot, and a coyote came running in, and scared the every single grouse out of the out of the county. I mean, they were just gone. And so we just we know you know we know it's over. So we packed up and went home and. We did the same thing the next morning, and it's about a three-hour drive for me to get up there. So I'm leaving my house about midnight again, heading up, and get there about 3 o'clock in the morning, set up, same story, just the same thing the next morning, just starting to get light. Hadn't even clicked a shutter yet, and here comes a raptor. Um, it was actually a golden eagle that was cruising over, and of course, it was over. Every grouse left the lek and packed up my stuff and went home. So that year, too, as well, I never really got any shooting on that lek. I went to a different lek and actually was able to get some shots. But it can be very frustrating. You've got to put your time in like we keep talking about, and you've got to just keep at it. And eventually it'll come together. But but I've found sage grouse, for me, you know, it's about a 50-50 endeavor. 50% of the time it'll work out, and the other 50% of the time it's just not getting And you've just got to be willing to accept that. So. It's a good thing it happens this time of year, right? When you've got all the patients too, because if that <laughs> happened during the elk rut, I think nobody would have any sage grouse pictures, right? It's, yeah, right. <laughs> and then you think about your market for a sage grouse picture. I mean, there's just not that many opportunities to to put that image out there. So if you look at the success ratio of images, the amount of time that you spend getting one good sage grouse image compared to one good elk image is like, there's no comparison. It just takes yeah. way long. It could take years to get a good sage grouse. Well, that's a good addition to it. And patience is, I mean, that's the name of the game with everything, with all the wildlife. It doesn't matter what you're shooting. Just predict it and be patient and it's going to happen. You just got to put in your time. Well, for my pro tip, I, again, like I told, told you earlier, I haven't been out in the field at all. It's just been nothing but data management, putting these podcasts up on youtube has been fun you start editing a podcast and you're like oh i got a perfect image that's going to illustrate what you know what ron just said or what jason said so i'll stop editing the podcast and i'll go on the hunt for an image and i've got to tell you i am pretty organized and i don't lose stuff well i i don't lose it as in it's in this room but <laughs> i I can spend two, three hours looking for one image very easily. And I keep trying to figure out what is the best way to deal with this data. Do you guys change your file name in your camera for different shoots? No. Nope. So I do and I don't. I go in spurts. And my tip is I think you should change. You can change the prefix that's in your file name for every shoot. What I've been running into is I have this software where I can go in and I can, if I can remember, oh, we were shooting elk and this was the bull we were shooting and it was in 2014, I can remember that much. So I've got a little bit of information and then I can find an image from that shoot, but I can't find the specific image I'm thinking about that illustrates for our YouTube video, right? So then I'll take that number and I'll do a search in my database. I use a program called Disk Catalog. And what that does is I put in a drive and I run it through Disk Catalog and it basically makes a, a disk directory of that particular hard drive. And it shows you everything that's on the drive. So you don't have to have the drive plugged in to look at the contents of that drive. And I've got every drive in this room 
in that in that system, right? So then once I know a number of a file, I can go and do a search for that number, and then it's going to tell me which drive it's on. The problem I've been running into is if you don't reset your file name, you can end up with the same file name for 20 different images. Just had this come up, actually. A friend of mine was doing a shoot, and it doesn't really matter necessarily thoroughly until you get to 10,000. So if you have 10,000 images of the same shoot, once you roll over from 9,999 and you roll back, if you're not changing things, if you're not changing a prefix, you're causing some serious problems for Lightroom trying to handle those files and keep them organized when you on the import. When I'm out on a commercial job, you know, they'll give me a shot list and I'll, they'll have numbered shots. We need one through 36 and, you know, you're just going to go screaming through these images. And sometimes we're shooting a lot of sports and I might shoot a thousand images trying to get that one shot that is what they want. And then if I'm shooting 36, that's 36,000 images potentially, right? So you're going to cycle through that numbering sequence quite often. So on that particular shoot, I was changing my prefix. Shot number one, I, I named it this prefix. Shot number two, I changed it to that prefix. But then that's a whole mindset that you got to get into where you're like, okay, I'm on to shot number two. Let's change the prefix. The day's going good and you're getting good images. That's the last thing you're thinking about is, oh, I need to change this. It's really tough. And I've just been having tons of issues with how do I find that image so I don't have 20 images of the same number? The other issue you can run into is you're going to overwrite. You know how sometimes you drag it in and you say, or or the computer will say, this image exists already. And and you're like, hmm. You know, you it, it can get really confusing. What I'll do during a day, if I'm shooting three or four cards, I'll do card one and then all the images from card one. And then card two, I'll separate it into different files so that I don't have that potential of overwriting a file. I don't know. I mean, there's just, there's so many ways to, to figure this out. And there's so many ways to, to get it done right. And the more I go through these images and the more I go searching for images, I'm just going to set my brain to function so that like every day you change a file name. I mean, there's not too many days other than when I do these commercial shoots where I'll shoot 10,000 other than Eagles. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> but maybe that's the thing. Every day you just wake up and part of your routine is you go in and you change that file name. And then it makes it easier down the road too, because if you're very creative, you can change it. You know, if you're shooting grouse, it's GRU and then let it assign the number. Or if you're shooting elk, it's ELK, but then you can only use elk once, right? You don't want to use elk three times. You just need to be pretty random with it so that every time it's a different prefix. If you, if you look over Mike's like right elbow, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see a small example of what he's dealing with because you can see that long line of discs right down there. And most of us don't have the same type of issues with uh, file management that Michael has because he's been shooting commercially for a long time. So there's hundreds of drives and uh, what each of them's eight terabytes or. Yeah. They range from four to six to eight terabyte drives throughout. Yeah. And that is the problem. I don't know what the answer is and you're right. My issue is probably a little bit more difficult than most people, but 
I think it's really easy to run into that problem if you're not changing it. Throughout the course of the year, for sure, you're going to shoot 10,000 images. When you end up with three, four, five hundred thousand images in your portfolio, that's that's a lot of stuff to wade through to find that one image. So that's my tip. It kind of evolved as we were talking about it, but hopefully it made sense. So what we thought we would talk about for our content today for our main discussion was lens choice. And I thought what we could do is just go through what's your favorite lens and why. But then I'm sure we're going to get into a conversation about other lenses. I mean, I don't think any one of us ever goes out into the field with just one lens. Although, well, I, I could say we go in the field with one lens, but a lot of times you might go to a shoot where you got your backpack where you leave it in a car and you have three or four lenses, but maybe you just go out in the field with one. We all have our go-to lens. What is the reason for that and why do you use it? So let's start with you, Ron. What is yours? So the combination of these two is actually why I switched from Canon to Nikon because I didn't, you know, I, I had enjoyed using Canon. My issue was that they didn't offer the same range um, and the that the Nikon did with their 200 to 500. And it is, without a doubt, at this point in time, what I use probably 90% of the time uh, when I'm on a wildlife shoot. And you hear, you know, I don't know everybody's background that's listening, but you hear people talk about the trinity of lenses. And typically it's like a, a short zoom, like a 16 to 35, um, mid zoom, 24 to 70, and then you've got the 70 to 200. So that would be the trinity of lenses for, say, a portrait photographer. For a wildlife photographer, I think that, you know, 24 to 70, because you want that fast, short zoom, so you can get those environmental portraits. And then from there, it kind of varies. Some people, it's 70 to 200, and then, you know, like a 200 to 500. And then for some people, they... It's 70 to 200, 200 to 500, and then a, a long prime, like a 600 F4. So it just kind of varies. But that the 200 to 500, it's, it's 5.6 throughout the zoom range. And what that does, it gives you the ability to, you know, it's not an F4, so you can't get that real shallow depth of field. But I've found that most of the time it's sufficient. So if you want to isolate your subject and, and add some bokeh, you know, nice clean background by blurring everything out, you can still do it with that F5.6 lens. And so I've, you know, besides that, the, the zoom range of 200 to 500 fits most scenarios that I've been in. The only thing that I would say that I like anything longer is um, with birds and, you know, grouse or especially like the small songbirds. If you're photographing small songbirds, having that, you know, that 600 with the F4, I think it, it does, it definitely helps you out. But I have got mine for sick currently. I just don't use it enough to justify. It's, you know, it's almost, what, five times as much as the 200 to 500. And I just don't use it enough to justify. I could rent, you know, I could rent one if I needed it anytime I wanted and still have one available and, you know, probably have a newer, newer version than the one I've got. But it, it sits far too much for being as expensive a lens as it is. So that 200 to 500 is definitely my favorite. 
So you were cutting out a little bit because of Skype. I don't know if we'll get that clean recording, but you said you're, you have your 600 F4 up for sale, right? I do. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, the reason is just because it sits too much. So the 200 to 500 meets 95% of my needs. Right. So unless you're like Don Jones or Jamin Hunter, who really just shoots birds all the time. Primarily birds. Yep. Yeah. All right. What about you, Jason? What's your go-to? I mean, and it's changed for you. I guess you could talk about that change too, I think. Maybe not too much. Well, I don't know. You've changed camera systems a little bit, yeah. so it's probably changed a bit. Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, you know, Ron's spot on with the way I the way I think about it and approach my lens selection too. Um, I actually have a couple other lenses that I've just picked up over the years that I've thought would be kind of cool to play with. For example, I have a 105 that I think I've used twice, and it's currently for sale. Um <laughs> And I have a, I have a 24 to 120, which is a great lens, the Nikon F4. Um, it's just a great walk-around lens. But I also picked up the 24 to 70, and that's become my go-to for any kind of landscape type or you know walk-around type photography. So, you know, I like to have that good op- opportunity or a good option for some landscape type um, stuff. So the 24 to 70 with my Nikon is still is still my go-to for that. And then I, you know, I kind of skipped the whole 70 to 200 because I just don't see the need for it, to be quite honest with the type of photography I do. Um, if I got into more portrait stuff, you know, that'd probably be a really necessary lens to have, like Ron alluded to, but I haven't gone there yet. So um, for me, the next lens I had in my Nikon lineup was the 2 to 500. And I'm with Ron. I mean, that that was the lens I used. That setup my, was my D810 at the time. And that 2 to 500 was my go-to setup. It was Quick, easy to handhold. Um, that lens is sharp throughout the entire range, and you can get the bokeh you want if you if you set up right, set up your shots properly. Um, there's times when it doesn't work as well, obviously, but for the most part, it does a pretty dang good job. And for the money, it's amazing. It's hard to beat. Um, then beyond that, I actually have my 500 millimeter um, f/4 prime. It's a Nikon, and that is my favorite lens. Um, even today, it's my favorite lens. Um, but when I want to do any kind of video, when I want to do any kind of long distance stuff, I can throw the 1.4 TC on there and I can get out to, I, I've done the math before, around 740, I think, 740 millimeters. Um, so, you know, that's nice. And uh, it's just hard to beat the bokeh. It's hard to beat the color rendition out of that lens. It's, you know, there's a reason those lenses are more money. Um, it does get old carrying that thing around. I'll tell you what, after you carry a two to 500 and a D810 and then you strap that big, that bad boy on a tripod and haul it around, it's a, you know, it's night and day. And I don't do hardly any hand holding at all with that setup. I really am a believer in trying to use a tripod, especially with the D850 because it's a higher megapixel camera. But then recently I picked up, as I mentioned, the two, the Sony a7R4 and the two to 600. And I'll tell you what, man, that's become my go-to for anything handheld for sure. Um, I haven't touched my D810 and my 2 to 500 for quite a while. Um, and I think a big part of it is it's still a great setup. It does just fine. But there's some benefits that that Sony has that this doesn't. The higher megapixels is part of it um, but for the, for the image part of it. But from the lens part of it, it's really that zoom range is 2 to 600. It's a 5.6 to 6.3, but it's basically 6.3 like we've talked about. Once you hit 300 millimeters, you're 6.3. So I'll just call it a 6.3 lens. 
Um, so you do a little bit, you do lose a little bit of that bulk opportunity, but again, you can get it if you set up your shots properly and it's just insane. I mean, it's a 90 degree turn to go from 200 to 600. The one thing I don't like about the two to 500 is you've got to crank that thing to get it out to 500 or crank it back pretty good of, you know, a few turns to get it back to 200. But, but, you know, other than that, it's, I mean, this, this lens is more expensive. It's a couple thousand dollars versus the, you know, I think you can get the Nikon on sale when you're looking for about $1,200. Um, but both great lenses. I just, you know, this A7R4 and the two to five, two to 600 has become my go-to. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. The biggest complaint I heard was that 6.3. The thing you just said is you got to set up your shot, right? You just can't, you know, it just takes a little bit of time to figure it out, figure out what the situation is that gives you the look that you want. Right. Yeah. And that, and that can all, that's not always easy too. You know, there's times when you just won't get it. You know, if you really are trying to create that bulk of fill and there's certain scenarios, where you're just not going to get it with that lens. This is bottom line, you know. So. Can you just explain for people what that what that look is that you're trying to get? So when you say bokeh, what that means something to everybody, I think. But what is your what is that look that you're trying to get? So for me, and and okay, that's a great point. And we, yeah, the bokeh for me is it's really just that kind of that that depth of feel, and it's the kind of that soft. Maybe blurry is not the right answer, but kind of soft and um, a somewhat blurred background. It really just makes your your image pop more. It makes your subject pop more. And, you know, for me, what I've noticed too, and maybe you guys can speak to this, but I've noticed personally that the lens selection really makes a difference on how that bokeh appears as well. So I might get the bokeh I'm looking for on the two to six or the two to five, but it's hard to beat the bokeh that you get out of that, that 500 F4. And it's not just about the aperture, right? It's not just about that f6.3 versus the f4. There's there's more to it than that. It's the amount of glass. It's the coatings on the glass. It's the technology of the lens and all those other factors play into it. And your settings. Your settings play into it too. I mean, that's why, you know, photography is not just like that. That's why f8 is not f8. It's not f8, right, Ron? Exactly. So you've got to understand a lot of different things to be able to make an image that you're looking for. Um, with an f4 prime, it's a lot easier to create that bokeh feel that you're looking for. Um, with the other lenses that are zoom lenses, it can be a little bit more difficult. And by easy, you just mean the situation is so much easier. Let's let's just put an example out there. So if you're shooting a turkey, like you were out doing, uh -huh. and you have mm -hmm. your two to six, and you have a turkey that's five feet away from some oak brush that's behind it, then you may not get that bokeh that you're looking for. But if you have a turkey that's 20 yards away from that oak brush, then you're probably going to get that look that you're looking for. Is that kind of a good synopsis or? Yeah, I've got, I've got an image that I'll throw in here. And it actually came the first day I took the 600 out, um, took it out to the golf course because there's a little marsh on the golf course where some yellow headed blackbirds were uh, nested in, in this, these reeds and cattails um, and kind of what Jason was talking about in setting up your shot. Uh, you've got a cattail background or just like I said, Mike, they're the cattails are only about five yards behind. And there was, there was one male and he was up on this same cattail all the time. He'd fly back down. Then he'd fly straight back up same perch. So I just, 
kind of move myself about 20 yards to my right. And I'll send both images so you can kind of see what it does for your image. Um, move about 20 yards to my right, and there's now there's a, a pine tree or blue spruce. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, it was about 50 yards, and it was in shadow. So now I've got this black background. Not only do I have the black background, but I shot it at F4. So now that black background, that spruce or pine, whatever it was, is totally out of focus and now it just looks like somebody put a black board behind that bird and it just that yellow-headed blackbird it just makes them pop and i you know that's kind of you can have the same lens but in setting up your shot differently and just understanding what that's going to do by getting the distance you know jason talked about it again with the bison if you get more distance you can get more depth of field but you know if you just change your angle and get closer to your subject your depth of field gets shallower, and then with that neck glass, you're you're going to separate it completely. And then I ended up getting, you know, as he's singing in the morning, in the nice cool morning, get a little mist coming out um, while he's singing. You can kind of see that note coming up into the air as you get that little bit of condensation from, you know, his breath. Yeah, and, I, and and Mike, I don't know if you were like following me around on Sunday morning, but that exact example you just mentioned is <laughs> what what I was fighting on Sunday morning. And in that scenario, it's actually funny you said that because I actually was trying, because of the situation, I was looking to get the turkey out of in front of that oak brush so I could get that depth that I was looking for. So, you know, the, like Ron just alluded to, there's options. You know, you may not get that depth with the oak brush behind them. But if you, you know, reposition yourself or, you know, wait for a, a window, you can get the shot you're looking for. But just might, you know, even with an F4, if you're doing it um, with that turkey example and the oak brush is five feet behind him, you're going to have a heck of a time blurring that, you know, oak brush out. So, well, and I guess my go to lens is the two to four Canon. There's so many good things about the image, but there's so many bad things about the weight. I mean, it's just like what you said with that 500. It's. It's a lot to carry, and for when I first got it, I don't know how old that lens is now, but probably 10 years old or older, you know, I didn't shoot it off of a tripod ever. But then when the trend started going where everybody's going to the 2 to 5 and everybody's getting all these really awesome shots because you're just so much faster when you're not on a tripod, I made the jump to leaving the tripod in the in the car and just going out with the 2 to 4 and just kind of muscled that thing around and you know, fortunately these cameras nowadays, you can crank up the ISO and help with that camera shake and some of the stuff that you might end up with. But the two to four for me is, it just does it. And I'm just a little worried about going to the two to six with the Sony system, just for that reason. I'm just so used to having the F4 and then you can just achieve that bokeh feel so much easier and you don't have you may not miss that shot because you may not have to change your now your example of five feet away that's always going to be a problem but you know if you're dealing with 10 yards yeah you might be able to pull it off or you know for sure you're going to get it with 20 yards but at 20 yards you're probably going to pull it off with 6.3 on your aperture there's no right or wrong answer for any of this it's just what you what your budget allows for and then what you get used to i think because you can make a cool image with just about anything that's out there. One of the things that I've been thinking about, wildlife photography is evolving, right? So in the beginning, when, well, let's just go to like the 80s, when it was just getting 
out there and Mangelson was shooting the fish in the grizzly bear's mouth and Boyd Norton was doing cool stuff in National Geographic and you know anybody could go out there with a big lens and, and end up with a pretty cool portrait image of just about whatever and it was cool but now portrait images are pretty common so then what are we going to do that's a little different and what I have a hard time doing is leaving that two to four and say okay today I'm just going to shoot with the 70 well, 24 to 70. I tried it last year, a couple of days where I've just like, you know, I'm leaving it because if I have it, I'm going to use it. So I have to not even have it with me. Now that the cool thing about that was, is when you're bebopping through the woods with just a, a camera body and the 24 to 70, you can get around in the woods pretty easily. But the problem is, is if you don't have a subject that's tolerant, it's pretty hard, but there's nothing to me right now in, in today's kind of world where you're looking at just different trends. If you get a big animal with a big landscape that's kind of cool and the only way you're going to get that go ahead well i was just going to say i think you need to show throw that uh black and white moose image that you had throw that back in the show notes again because that's exactly that's the epitome of what you're talking about that image was man alive that was was a killer well, and I just happened to be in the right situation. I had a really tolerant moose and I had, and he approached me and it was just the situation where you had fog on the mountaintops. And it was that day where I just, I think the reason I went with that or that camera lens combination was because I was carrying the red camera too. And that's a lot of weight. So I was like, well, I'm just going to, if I shoot stills, I'm just going to shoot with this and I'll get what I get. But I had that mindset in my mind. It's like, you know, if I could get a big animal that's fairly close because if you're shooting, let's say you have a a turkey that's 30 yards away with the 24 to 70, it's a dot, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're not going to get a picture that's going to turn anybody's head. There's no magazine editors that are going to be like, oh, man, just look at that turkey. <laughs> They're going to be like, what, what's it, what, are you, what are you showing me in this image for? So if you have the situation that allows that image to happen, you know, you're going to, if you're going to do the turkey thing, you're going to need to be in a blind or something where that turkey just gets to, you know, five feet away, but then you can show the whole habitat, right? You can shoot, show the oak brush and the big, huge pine trees or whatever the habitat happens to be. And all of a sudden you've just got a whole different perspective on this animal and that habitat. It just kind of tells that whole story. Now, when we were interviewing Drew last week, he's got a solution where you can achieve this with big lenses, but you better be Johnny on the spot to get this to happen, but you can stitch these images. And I've tried this before. I've had this idea um, where I tried it was up with doll sheep. So let's say I found a doll sheep and I've got my two to four. I get a nice portrait shot of that sheep. Then what you want to do is you want to shoot the picture of the sheep on the edge of the cliff, and then you want to shoot four or five pictures off to the left or off to the right, or, you know, just continue. Don't change anything, just shoot. And then when you get back, you stitch all these images together. And then all of a sudden you've kind of achieved the same thing that you're going for with the 24 to 105 or 24 to 70. So you've got a big animal, but you also have that landscape. Sounds super easy, but, I've tried it a lot and it's super hard because you have to have just that right situation. And then you can't be autofocusing either because if you start stitching images together and you got your arm, let's say you focus on that doll sheep, 
then you scooch over and you you hit that focus button again now all of a sudden your background that was <clears throat> way off in the distance and out of focus is no longer out of focus so now you can't stitch those images together anymore so there's ways to achieve it but it's super hard to, to pull it off we have an article that drew wrote that's on the website that you guys can go read when he goes and shoots these polar bears He's got a stellar shot that he stitched together, and it, there's no way this image would have ever happened had he not had that thought process in his mind of, okay, there's no way I'm going to move forward or move back. He can't zoom with his feet. He's shooting a polar bear, for crying out loud. You can't be running around. So he's like, okay, I'm going to shoot this, 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 and this, and then I'm going to stitch it together later. Now, you have to hope that that bear is not moving because it's hard to stitch images together where stuff's moving, you know a leg is going to be in the different wrong position or whatever. So, but he's got some examples where it actually works. So that's one way to do it. But I think if you want to challenge yourself, it's well, what I have to do to challenge myself is I have to leave that two to four in the car. I have to grab the 24 to 105 or 24 to 70. And then you just, and then you obviously you have to know what you're shooting and you have to have that right situation. The other thing you could try is remote cameras, and I've done that a little bit too. And that remote technology is getting so much better. So if you can say, okay, we've got a moose that's going to walk down this trail because they walk down that trail every day, or you know, you could potentially set up a cool shot. Have you guys ever followed the work of David Yarrow? Uh, no, I haven't. So I'll put a link in the show notes because it's a really awesome little video that he did. But his whole thing is this this whole thought process. He's like, you know, I need to be something different. I need to be something that sets me apart. So if you guys actually look him up on Instagram, David Yarrow, he's getting these shots where you've just got massive, big African lion in the frame. But then you're seeing this wide landscape or you've got an elephant and you're seeing all this really cool stuff. He's done it with polar bears, too. What blows your mind about it is it's different. You know, he's out there working it, but he's achieving a lot of that. And when you watch this video, see, he shows like with elephants, he'll just set up his camera out in the middle of a field. Like if he knows these elephants are going to be walking across this dry lake bed. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He'll set up his camera out in that dry lake bed and go run back to the truck. And then, you know, because they don't let you out of a car in a safari vehicle if there's animals around. So they predict where these animals, these elephants are going to go. He goes and sets up his camera and he's running it with a remote. And then what he does is when they start coming up to that, then he starts banging off shots. There's all kinds of problems wrapped around that, right? I mean, there's focus issues. There's all these things that you're going to run into. Exposure issues. You just don't have your hands on that camera, so you can't make any adjustments. You're just going to have to set it, go back, and then just start hitting your remote to fire that camera. And hope you get what you get. And the only way you're going to get good at that is to do it over and over and over. But if you look at those images, I think it's well worth the time. His Yeah, his stuff is pretty epic. I mean, he's he's on another level from... He is getting the things that set him apart, for sure. And that's what I was watching before I went and did that moose picture. Because I was like, ah, oh, man, I love really? this stuff. So that was my whole you know, creative drive to like, okay, let's try this. Let's just see if you can do it. But I'm not going to take the two to four. Like I said earlier, there's no right or wrong to any of this stuff. You just really got to figure out what works for you and you just got to go with it. We all shoot the same thing every year. Maybe this year's the year where you're like, okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to try it a little different. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to go with my 
go-to lens. I'm going to go with something that makes you, you know, step out of your comfort zone and try to create something that nobody else is seeing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think you can do that same thing too, Mike, with the, uh, with the 500, for example, or your longer lens. So, you know, there's twice this last year that I went into the field with only my 500 prime and I did not take my two to 500. Um, and the, and the, and that really forces you to do, to be more creative with some of your crops. You know, when the action gets hot and heavy and it gets right in your face, you know, you're not going to get images. And if, you know, and if you're trying to get the entire animal in the image, sometimes that just isn't going to happen. So then it really forces you to think on your feet and decide what's, what's a creative crop. How's this going to look good? What's an image I can create, um, you know, with this situation. So I don't know. I found that to be kind of fun and challenging too. It's not quite the same as you're discussing though, right? With the, with the remote cameras, especially, but you know, it is, it is, a, you get used when you have, when you're having a handhold system and it's a zoom, you kind of get used to and comfortable having that zoom range and just being able to do whatever you want. You know, you don't have to create that zoom with your feet all the time. So using a prime can help do some of the same kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think it's just, I mean, it's something we all got to be paying attention to. If you want to make a mark in this world, and if you want to have an image that you throw on Instagram or an image that it's an editor looks at it and says, holy moly, I've never seen that before. That's what's going to set you apart. So it's well worth the time to, to play around with it. You just got to know you're going to sacrifice those killer images that you know you could have got had you had your standby. You just got to know that, well, today I just might not get anything. And I think yeah. the animals, the wildlife that you're photographing is going to dictate a lot of that. So, if you know, these moose that I was shooting, I'd shot them for 30 days straight. And I just knew if I get in this situation in this spot, I'm not, you know, and if the animal's coming to me, I'm not approaching the animal, then I might be able to pull this off. So you just got to, I mean, it's a, it's a specialty thing, but I think it's something to think about. I think it's something to push yourself and really kind of just step out of that, that zone and, and make some cool stuff happen. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think it's a good idea, and I think you've given me some ideas for my summer trip to Alaska. So Hopefully this has been a good discussion for everybody just to kind of just talk about these lenses. I don't know. Everybody's got a little thought process, but I can tell you this year my focus. And I not only do I use that, that thought process with my stills, but I'm doing it with video too because a lot of times with video, it's like, oh, I just want my long lens and I just want to shoot really cool slow-mo of snot coming out of the nostril or morning breath coming out. Or I'm like, I'm just going to take a wide angle and I'm just going to see what I can get with that today and just make it happen. But make sure you check out our show notes because I will put that video that I referenced from uh, that David Yarrow guy in, in that. You can watch that little video. And I don't know the guy. I, don't, I know his work. I, I like his work. What, that's what I was going to say is I didn't recognize the name, but as soon as you started talking about his images, you definitely know his work. And I guarantee you everybody's seen it because it's everywhere. Yeah. He just came out with a book last year and I think it was very prolific on Instagram with advertising, you know, little ads. And then I followed him anyway, so I got a lot of his stuff, but his stuff is different. It's, he's definitely setting himself apart and he's, he's making a, you know, we, and this whole thing that we do has got to evolve a little bit. If you want to really make it out there, you got to do something a little different. Well, and if people have questions, right, let please write in and let us know, DM one of us, um, go to the, you know, email us, um, 
and just let us know. We'd, we'd love to try to answer them in a future episode, too, if there are specific questions that we can answer. Yeah, and then the other thing to have on your radar is we're going to start, we're going to try it out. We're going to try out a little image review as part of the podcast. Um, we haven't figured out all the exact nuts and bolts to this, so just know that it's out there. It's going to come. We're going to put all the the requirements for sending in an image because we want to do it justice, so we want to probably going to submit on Instagram, but then we're going to want real images too to, to, to have a big image up on our screen so that if we're given a, some sort of review of an image, we want to see it in a big format. But there's just a lot of little moving parts, and we're going to get all that ironed out here in the next week. So we'll advertise it on our Instagram feed. We'll, each one of us will probably put it out on our, our personal Instagram feeds, and then we'll also have a page on the website where you can go and you can just follow those instructions on how to submit the image or your images so that we can make that part of every show. All right. So thanks for listening to another episode of wild and exposed. Please catch up to us on Instagram, YouTube, you subscribe, hit that bell. So you know, when we've got new content up there and hit us all up on Facebook again, thanks to our hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie. Actually, Michael's been doing a lot of the production as well this last few weeks but missy will get mad at me michael won't if i fail to mention so thanks missy and look forward to talking to y'all in the field we got our windows down driving down the 405 sing along to the radio Mm-mm. we're gonna make it someday nothing's gonna get in our way we will be the biggest band in town